Hello, friends. Welcome to episode six of Ents Insensibility, the podcast for Jane Austen fans who love bold, witty women, awkward, handsome men, and dragons. I'm your host, Casey Meserve. Together, we are reading Austen's published works one chapter at a time. We'll discuss the major themes, Austen criticism, her earliest fans, her place as an author in the 21st century, and as much nerddom as we can get away with. Today, we are reading Chapter 6 of Sense and Sensibility. Now, we're all Austen fans here, and we all have our own reasons for loving Jane. Some listeners teach the books. Some love Regency dress and cosplay. Others love the subtlety of Jane's characters or her sarcastic wit, and some of us are bibliophiles who are addicted to her books. All are welcome here on Ents and Sensibility, and the community is meant to be inclusive to all of those who love Austen and literature. I welcome all of you. So I would really like to welcome you, the listeners, to take part in the podcast and talk about your own love of Jane. Everyone has their own story, and I want to welcome members of our diverse fandom. If you'd like to join me for a conversation on the podcast, please send me an email at entsandsensibility at gmail.com or a message on any of the social media channels. Today, I thought we could begin to look at some of Jane's earliest fans, maybe a few of her critics too. I think we'll call this series The Janeites and the Critics. Now, during Jane's lifetime, her novels brought her very little personal fame, mostly because she published anonymously. All of her novels were originally published by a lady, and it was only after her death that her brothers acknowledged her authorship. But there were a few people who knew that Miss Austen was a novelist, and one of them was the Prince Regent. In fact, the future King George IV purchased a copy of Sense and Sensibility two days before the first public advertisement for the book. A PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania discovered the 28th of October 1811 receipt for 15 shillings from the bookseller Beckett and Porter for Sense and Sensibility, among other books. Now, the Prince Regent did not have a great reputation. He was a womanizer, he gambled, he wasted money. He was absolutely wretched to his poor wife, Princess Caroline. And Jane was not a fan of his. She wrote in 1813 that she took the side of the Prince's wife after his infidelities became public. Poor woman, I shall support her as long as I can because she is a woman and because I hate her husband. But the Prince Regent was a big fan of Jane's, and he had multiple copies of her books. In 1815, Austen arrived in London to stay with her brother Henry at his home in Hans Place. But Henry became ill, and a Dr. Bally, who happened to be the Prince Regent's doctor, was called in. Somehow Jane's novels were brought up, and Dr. Bally told Austen that the Prince Regent was a great admirer of her work. And later, the Prince Regent's librarian, James Stanier Clark, contacted Austen and invited her to tour the Prince's London home, Carlton House. Now, despite her hatred of the Prince Regent, Austen accepted the invitation. I mean, how do you say no to visiting a prince's house? So she visited Carlton Place on November 13th, 1815. Stanier Clark told Jane 
that the Prince Regent kept a set of her novels at each of his residences, and that by her permission, Jane was at liberty to dedicate any future novel to him. So this was a conundrum for Jane, because while she loathed the prince, a dedication like this had a lot of value and it could lead to more book sales. Austin dedicated her next novel, Emma, to His Royal Highness, the Prince Regent. This work is, by His Royal Highness's permission, most respectfully dedicated by His Royal Highness's dutiful and obedient humble servant. That's a mouthful and rather unenthusiastic. And it's really unlike Jane, who is wordy, but she doesn't usually repeat herself. And scholars have interpreted the clunky dedication to be a mockery of the prince's character and his unscrupulous habits. But she never did explain the wording. Critic Peter Sabor called it one of the worst sentences she ever committed to print. But apparently the Prince Regent was pleased with the dedication and never caught on to Jane's sarcasm. We continue our chapter discussion of Sense and Sensibility this week with Chapter 6. In our last episode, Mrs. Dashwood announced her intention to leave Norland after laying the verbal smackdown on Fanny and fortuitously receiving a letter from a distant relative offering her a house on the same day. Edward took their going far more emotionally than we expected he would in our introduction to him, and John, who once considered giving the family £3,000, never even offered to carry a bag to the carriage. Mrs. Dashwood packs up her linens and Marianne's piano, Eleanor makes sure they aren't spending too much on servants, and Marianne says goodbye to the house and her favorite tree, which I don't blame her for doing, and they are all off like a herd of turtles to Devonshire. The first part of their journey was performed in too melancholy a disposition to be otherwise than tedious and unpleasant. But as they drew towards the end of it, their interest in the appearance of a country which they were to inhabit overcame their dejection, and a view of Barton Valley as they entered it gave them cheerfulness. It was a pleasant fertile spot, well wooded and rich in pasture. After winding along for more than a mile, they reached their own house. A small green court was the whole of its domain in front, and a neat wicked gate admitted them into it. The Dashwoods are depressed. Who wouldn't be depressed when they have to move like this? It's really hard for them to move Norland. It's hard to leave a home that you love as much as the Dashwoods love Norland. I remember moving when I was 16, which was Marianne's age. We were moving from a house I grew up in into a much bigger and nicer house, but it was so hard. I remember going from room to room and saying goodbye to the two huge oak trees in the backyard. And even though I finally had my own room after 16 years of sharing with two of my siblings, I was really sad about moving. But the Dashwoods aren't moving to a nicer house. They're moving down in the world and they have to leave all the things they love. So that's just heartbreaking. They have to leave their home and their friends and their family. Although that's probably not a bad thing. The lovely trees and Edward. So they're all feeling really dejected as they begin their journey. And they're probably also feeling apprehensive because they haven't seen Sir John in almost a decade. 
They don't know what he's like except for from his letters, and they're probably anxious about meeting him and his wife, which is probably why Mrs. D decided that they would go directly to Barton Cottage instead of staying with Sir John and his wife, as he had initially offered. They're just too anxious and too apprehensive about trying to stay with this man and his wife that they barely know. So with all this emotion and the gloomy thoughts that they probably have, it's really hard for them to pay any attention to the scenery outside the carriage for the first part of the trip. But as they get closer, they do begin to pay attention. They see this lovely green valley and the views provide them with some cheerfulness. It's not a gloomy place. It's really a very pleasant place. In the house, when they finally see it, it's small, but it's also really comfortable and neat. As a house, Barton Cottage, though small, was comfortable and compact. But as a cottage, it was defective, for the building was regular, the roof was tiled, the window shutters were not painted green, nor were the walls covered with honeysuckles. A narrow passage led directly through the house into the garden behind. On each side of the entrance was a sitting room, about 16 feet square, and beyond them were the offices and the stairs. Four bedrooms and two garrets formed the rest of the house. It had not been built many years and was in good repair. In comparison of Norland, it was poor and small indeed, but the tears which recollection called forth as they entered the house were soon dried away. They were cheered by the joy of the servants on their arrival, in each for the sake of the others, resolved to appear happy. It was very early in September, the season was fine, and from first seeing the place under the advantage of good weather, they received an impression in its favor which was of material service in recommending it to their lasting approbation. So the house is a lot smaller than Barton. It's smaller than any place that the family has ever lived. But it's not an idyllic cottage either. It doesn't meet the family's romantic notions of what a cottage should be. Now that romantic cottage is actually pretty close to what a Disney cottage would be, like the Woodcutter's Cottage from Sleeping Beauty, or the Seven Dwarfs Cottage in Snow White, but it would be much bigger. I remember the cottages I saw in southern England years back. They were traditional-looking cottages with thatched roofs covered with moss, tiny windows with boxes of bright flowers spilling out of them, uh, the waddle and daub walls. These were supposed to be very humble homes. But there was a trend in the late 1700s, early 1800s for the wealthy to build and live in cottages. But these were not small or humble. These were like someone calling their six-bedroom lake house with a chef-inspired kitchen a camp. So these dwellings, or cottage or nay, were inspired by the romantic and picturesque ideals of the cottage. But they didn't look like cottages except for irregular designs and earth tones and lots of vegetation around them. These buildings appealed to sensibilities, so Marianne may be a little disappointed when she first sees the house, which is plain and regular and has the tile roof and a neat appearance, but it's not the cottage that she pictured. But everyone tries to be very pleased for everyone else's sake. Then the narrator really delves into the landscape around Barton, and it's just breathtaking. Then I, I don't think 
Jane gets a lot of credit for her landscape. She doesn't always include a lot of landscape descriptions. Um, but what she does, they're just beautiful. High hills rose immediately behind, and at no great distance on each side, some of which were open downs, the others cultivated and woody. The village of Barton was chiefly on one of these hills, and formed a pleasant view from the cottage window. The prospect in front was more extensive. It commanded the whole of the valley and reached into the country beyond. The hills which surrounded the cottage terminated the valley in that direction. Under another name and another course, it branched out again between two of the steepest of them. So they can see everything from Barton Cottage. Behind them is the village of Barton, which they can see from the windows. And in front, they see downs and valleys just into the distance. Downs are treeless hills, mostly made of chalk, and they cover much of southern England. And downs have always intrigued me because, as an American, I didn't know why hills were called downs. It just does not make sense. To, it still doesn't make sense to me. And I know what hills are, but I don't think you can really understand the size of downs until you see them in person. They're enormous. You feel very small and very exposed when you're walking across the downs. Downs are still used for grazing sheep today, and when you climb them, they're usually far steeper than they look. And you really need to keep an eye out for sheep droppings. As an aside, one day the college group I was with took a cab ride to see the White Horse of Uffington, which is a huge image of a horse carved into the hillside near Oxford. There were sheep everywhere on the downs, and one of the girls wore flip-flops. Let's just say it wasn't pretty. I have some photos from that day, not a feat, of the downs and the chalk drawings so you can actually see what it looks like um and i'll post those on facebook and instagram anyways the dashwoods settle into the new home mrs dashwood is pleased with the house the furniture although of course she thinks it's too small and it, that it's lacking she's used to a much grander lifestyle but she's got some ideas yet to add and improve was a delight to her and she had at this time ready money enough to supply all that was wanted of the greater elegance to the apartments. As for the house itself, to be sure, she said, it is too small for our family, but we will make ourselves tolerably comfortable for the present as it is too late in the year for improvements. Perhaps in the spring, if I have plenty of money, as I dare say I shall, we may think about building. So, she thinks the parlors are too small for parties, so one of them needs to be enlarged into a sitting room. She wants additional bedrooms above them, and she's sure she's going to have plenty of money to do all of this. But £500 a year is a pitiful amount for making such extensive renovations. Renovations would cost far more than Mrs. D can afford. But here she is with her flighty daydreamy personality, dreaming about things that she might be able to do. And the narrator pokes a little bit of fun at Mrs. D here. In the meantime, till all these alterations could be made from the savings of an income of 500 a year by a woman who had never saved in her life, they were wise enough to be contented with the house as it was, and each of them was busy in arranging their particular concerns and endeavoring, by placing around them their books and other possessions, to form themselves a home. That really is the most important thing. 
A place is not a home until your stuff is in it. You look at an empty room and it's just a cell until you begin filling it with your stuff. You know, you have your favorite chair, and if you're a book nerd like me, you have to find the best spot for your bookcase, and then you have to arrange all your favorite books in the right order. Marion's pianoforte finds a spot, and Eleanor's drawings are hung on the wall, and Margaret doesn't have anything to display yet, but that's okay, she's young. So the family Dashwood continues to unpack the next morning when they finally meet their landlord. Now we finally get to meet this man who is so generous in offering a distant cousin a home at a very reasonable rent. So what is Sir John like? Their landlord, who called to welcome them at Barton and to offer them every accommodation from his own house and garden in which theirs might at present be deficient. Sir John Middleton was a good-looking man about 40. He had formerly visited at Stanhill, but it was too long for his young cousins to remember him. His countenance was thoroughly good-humored, and his manners were as friendly as the style of his letter. Their arrival seemed to afford him real satisfaction, and their comfort to be an object of real solicitude to him. He said much of his earnest desire of their living in the most sociable terms with his family, and pressed them so cordially to dine at Barton Park every day till they were better settled at home that— though his entreaties were carried to a point of perseverance beyond civility, they could not give offense. His kindness was not confined to words, for within an hour after he left them, a large basket full of garden stuff and fruit arrived from the park, which was followed before the end of the day by a present of game. He insisted, moreover, on conveying all their letters to and from the post for them, and would not be denied the satisfaction of sending them his newspaper every day. What a guy. Sir John is the anti-John Dashwood. I wonder if that's why they share a first name. Sir John is super kind and generous. Remember that John Dashwood considered sending presents of game and fish to his sisters in Chapter 2? Sir John just met the family, and he's sending over game and vegetables. He's offered to bring them their mail and his newspaper. He's extremely kind and generous. At this time, outside of London, there wasn't home delivery for the post in England, so you would have had to walk to the post office to pick up and drop off letters. Sir John has offered to do that for him, and he's bringing them his newspaper. And it wasn't uncommon to share a newspaper around the neighborhood at that time, but he's almost too kind. His entreaties were carried to a point of perseverance beyond civility. So he's kind to the point beyond being civil or friendly to the point of rudeness. He's that person who insists, insists that you have to do something with them. Even though what he's offering sounds very pleasant, he's insisting to the point that makes the Dashwoods a little uncomfortable. But, you know, he's so nice that you can't say no to him. Now, Sir John's wife, Lady Middleton, is very different from her husband. Lady Middleton had sent a very civil message by him, denoting her intention of waiting on Mrs. Dashwood as soon as she could be assured that her visit would be no inconvenience. And as this message was answered by an invitation equally polite, her ladyship was introduced to them the next day. They were, of course, very anxious to see a person on whom so much of their comfort at Barton must depend, and the elegance of her appearance was favorable to their wishes. 
Lady Middleton was not more than six or seven and twenty. Her face was handsome, her figure tall and striking, and her address graceful. Her manners had all the elegance which her husband's wanted, but they would have been improved by some share of his frankness and warmth, and her visit was long enough to detract something from their first admiration, by showing that, though perfectly well-bred, she was reserved, cold, and had nothing to say for herself beyond the most commonplace inquiry or remark. So Lady Middleton is a stickler for formality. She very properly sends the Dashwoods a note, and they very properly return one. She is tall and elegant and beautiful, but she's cold. She's so focused on etiquette and protocol that all she needs is to be plated in gold and you could bring her into space as your protocol droid. And she's a huge contrast from her husband, who is so outgoing and friendly that he becomes uncivil. He's almost rude in his desire to be of service to the Dashwoods. And together they fill all the qualities lacking in the other. They're not at all like John and Fanny, who are greedy and grasping to the point that they'll try to think of ways to steal dinner plates from a widow after kicking her out of her home. So the two families meet for a very formal 15-minute visit, and Lady Middleton has brought her oldest son, so she has something to talk about. And the narrator makes a point of this, and it's really funny. On every formal visit, a child ought to be part of the party by way of provision of discourse. In the present case, it took up ten minutes to determine whether the boy were most like his father or mother, and in what particular ways he resembled either. For, of course, everybody differed, and everybody was astonished at the opinions of the others. I think this is still true today. Even now, whenever I end up in an awkward situation with strangers, or with family I haven't seen in a long time, if there's a kid there, at least... That gives you a topic to talk about because once you ask a parent about their child, they're just going to chatter away and it's very easy to have a conversation that way. And I'm sure kids hated that in the 1700s as much as I did when I was a teenager and as much as they probably do today. But now it's time for the Dashwoods to return the visit. But instead of politely inviting the family, Sir John won't leave until they agree to come to dinner the next day. That's all for chapter six and the end of today's episode. Next time, we'll finally get to see Barton Park, the most elegant and hospitable house in all of Southern England, or the Middletons wish it would be. We meet two new characters and Marianne gets a chance to shine on the piano. Thank you for listening to Ents and Sensibility. This episode was written and produced by me, Casey Meserve. You can write to me at entsandsensibility at gmail.com and you can follow Ents and Sensibility on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, that would be an enormous benefit to the show. Check out our website, Ents and Sensibility, for updated episode notes, a list of books and references mentioned on the podcast, and more. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you'll visit again soon.